In the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We have so far talked about the life of Samuel the prophet, and we saw the transition between Israel under the rule of judges to Israel under the rule of kings. We also saw that Saul so far has been a good king, has been following what God has asked of him. And now from chapter 13 and 14, we will start seeing the fall of Saul in the eyes of God. He will still remain a king, but he will actually fall from the eyes of God as a king. And we will see uh, what caused this fall. So we'll start from chapter 13. It said, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. So he's basically saying, last story when they won over the Philistines this has been the first year of Saul's reign the second now is now the events we're going to talk about today Saul has been reigning for two years some father said that two years represents the time that Saul was considered to be a king in the eyes of God the rest he was not considered to be a king in the eyes of God and this is also like a, a message for all of us because I could still be serving. I could still be a priest. I could still be a servant. But in the eyes of God, he no longer works with me. He no longer works for me. Also, the word reigned for one year. Sometimes it, um, it, like it means a year or it means a certain age. And the, the age one year was typically used for the sacrificial of the lamb. This is the year required for the lamb to be, uh, 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 how, how old it is to be sacrificed. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in his mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Geba of Benjamin. The rest of the people sent away every man to his, to his sin. Obviously, just to think about the structure, the Philistines, even though they suffered a defeat, they're still kind of in control. Their overall, uh, Israel is very weak. They only have 3,000 soldiers, two with Saul, 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with, with Jonathan. Jonathan is considered to be the prince, so it is reasonable for him to have 1,000 people with him. By the way, the word thousand here sometimes could mean a military unit. So it doesn't mean exactly a thousand. It could also mean a military unit. So because it's a very poor nation, he has two thousand. Jonathan has one thousand. Jonathan is Saul's son. And then obviously they send the rest of the people home to farm and to look after the sheep and all that stuff. Jonathan, verse 3, and Jonathan attacked the grisson of the Philistines that was a Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Jonathan, the son of Saul, is actually a very a beautiful young man. You will see later on, he has such a pure heart, and he is very courageous, and he is truly somebody who does not hold grudges. So out of his carriage, he said, you know what, I don't like how, even though we defeated the Philistines, but the Philistines always caused threats to us. We're a very small nation, 
And we will see later on the Philistines wouldn't even allow them to have a, 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 a metal smith, iron smith in their, in their fields. So they, they cannot even have any weapons. So basically they're very weak people military-wise. So he actually went and he attacked the Grisim. The word Grisim could mean a structure. It could also mean a governor. Most likely he went and he attacked one of the leaders of the Philistines. And that's a very effective tactic that you actually go and kill one of the leaders to make people afraid. So Saul heard and asked the people to come and join for war. When Saul heard that Jonathan attacked, he started asking people, come, get ready from all, come back from your farms, come back from your uh, sheep, and come start serving in the war. Obviously, it shows you the state of Israel. Like, they come to fight with an axe, with a knife, with a stick, where the Philistines are very strong as an army. Now, all Israel heard, heard it said that Saul had attacked aggression of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Obviously, Jonathan was the one who struck the Philistines, but people heard that Saul, Saul and Jonathan are one, but all the work you do, it, it, it's credited toward the king. But one of the words in this verse that is so beautiful says what? And they heard that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. What does that mean? A lot of times Israel and Philistines would have peace and have agreement. But this time they've heard because of Jonathan attack, there is no more agreement. The Philistines are determined to fight. And that's sometimes, especially in our spiritual life, there are certain habits in our life that we keep kind of making peace with. You know, I like to sleep a lot. I like to be addicted to coffee. I like to be, I like to watch certain shows, certain things that I like to make peace with. And here we see that Jonathan, because of his courage, he put all Israel in a state of war. He says, no more of this fake peace. It's either war with evil or we will be slaves all our life. So people, all of them determined to fight. And obviously, they went to Gilgal. Gilgal is a very important place. If you guys remember, this is the place that they worship. This is the place where Samuel used to offer intercessory prayers. This is also the place where Samuel was, uh, Saul was appointed as a king. So he told them, come to this place. This place is important. This is a holy place for us. This is where we worship. This is where he was ordained the king. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. How big the Philistines? 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. And the people as the sand with which and on a seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Mishmash to the east of Beth Evan. If you think of a, a chariot, I mean, some of you, you know, some of us might have seen this in, in, in some movies or things like this, like a little cart with three horses or two horses, and you have three people riding on it, and they can throw arrows and kill. So it's almost like the tank, you know, you have three tanks, they have 30,000 tanks. This is, this is crazy. It's a strong army. Israel has how many? 3,000. 
numbers that you cannot count. And he says here what? They encamped at, at uh, Mikmash. Mikmash was part of, of Israel. It means that Israel already have given up one of their cities. So the Bible is just telling us something very clear. He's saying the differences between the two armies is huge. There is no way a victory will take place without the work of God. And this is one of the things I think that God tries to do in our life all the time. Without me, he cannot do anything. Without me, everything is impossible. Without me, fulfilling the commandment is difficult. Fighting the devil is hard. So here, God always tried to, to let us know our inability so we can run to him for help. So when he works in our life, I don't walk around and say, oh, I defeated the devil. Sometimes people, when they talk, they say, oh, I was able to stop the sin. Obviously, it's not about the, 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 the language itself is wrong. Because God himself helped us with the sin. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thicklets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. Basically, the reaction of most of the people, we're going to die. These are a huge, huge army. They started acting like rats, you know, hide in the caves, hide everywhere. And one of the biggest motivation for sin is fear. There's so many things that we would be able to face if we're not afraid. And here, the people were all scared. Even though last chapter, they just had a great victory. It has been only two years. God saved them. And Samuel told them, God will be with you. It hasn't taken a long time. But once they saw the enemy, they ran again. Once they saw the difficulties, they complained again. If it's almost some time, we never reached a point where I am able to think in tribulation. I'm able to rejoice in difficulties. Because every time the difficulties come, I react exactly the same way. So, and by the way, the area of, of, of Palestine is known to have a lot of caves. And we'll see David later on hides from Saul in one of the caves. People were distressed, but they did not pray. Even though they have seen a great example in front of them, Samuel. But instead of praying, they ran away. And some of the Hebrews crossed over to the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As, as for Saul, he was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him trembling. Some people decided what, said, you know what, let's leave this whole country altogether and let's go to an area far away. It's also part of Israel, but far away from war. You know, let's avoid this whole, whole issues. And the rest of the people that followed uh, Saul were scared. The only person that is courageous in this story is Jonathan, the son of Saul. Also, sometime 
fear is contagious. People can feed each other courage or can feed each other fear. And we see this in the story of the 21 Coptic martyrs in Libya. They encourage each other for martyrdom. The story of St. Rebecca who encouraged her five children for martyrdom. But we have seen people where they actually lead each other to failure. For here, everybody is talking the same language. Everybody is talking the language of fear. So they are a Gilgal. People are scared. Some people left. Then he waited, there's a soul, seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. We said Gilgal is a place of worship. And seven days probably is a time that's required for consecration. Before any worship, any ritual, they have to be consecrated. So it seems like there's a yearly calendar for worship, and you can see this in Exodus 9, 5, 23, 15, Leviticus 23, 2. There is there's a calendar for worship. And they were waiting for Samuel to come. Time of the feast, time of the nativity, time of Easter. You expect there is a liturgy in the church. So they're coming and expecting a liturgy to happen. That's basically what's what's happened. But Samuel delayed. Obviously, Samuel is old at this time. And we don't know the reason for the delay. But Saul had a problem. Now, people started to leave. People are scared. Saul himself started to get worried. He needs to take an action. The army of the enemy is coming toward him. So he decided to do something that will make God very upset. He decided to offer the sacrifice himself. He decided to offer the sacrifice himself. Imagine he walks, instead of telling the priest, you move on the side, I'm going to offer the lamb. Because I'm a king. Or I'm a governor. Or I'm a president. And it makes us wonder... How effective were the seven days of consecration they went through? Did they really pray? Did they really prepare themselves? Or was it just a ritual that they went through? That, that when the time came to make a decision, he was frightened. He was scared. He got no peace from prayer. He received no comfort means the prayer was just ritual consecration was basically consecration in the old days wash your hand wash your feet you know don't touch anything dead like try to be holy not drink wine they consecrate themselves that's all nothing else so Saul said bring the burnt offering and peace offering here to me and he offered the burnt offering the, the, the burnt offering is obviously usually for the forgiveness of sins, and peace offering is for fellowship. So he, by the time he finished the burnt offering, Samuel came for the peace offering. So we'll see this later. So he only was able to do the first one. We see here that Samuel's faith himself is getting weaker. Instead of telling people, look, sorry, Saul's faith is getting weaker. Instead of telling them, look, Samuel is delayed, let's have a prayer meeting. 
let's kind of send the messenger to him, see how he's doing. Give people a speech to encourage them. Tell them, you know, remember last year God was with us and we fought and we won. He has so many tools to use. But because his prayer was not faithful prayer. He came to the liturgy, he left without, like St. John Chrysostom, without, said, without lifting his heart and his mind to God. It meant nothing, it had no impact. He's trying to follow the rituals to please God, but in how fake he performed the rituals, he took nothing from God. It's almost like somebody comes to take communion for years. Day in and day out, year, week in and week out. But it has no effect on their life. Why? Because sometimes we just go through the rituals and we don't pray with our hearts. Now, obviously, the Bible is telling us, Saul, he should have just waited a little bit more. Look here, it says, And it happened as soon as he has finished presenting the burnt offering. Then Samuel came. If he was just waited a little bit. And Saul went to meet him, that he might greet him. You know, I'll tell you guys something. In our spiritual life, sometimes this last few minutes where all the struggle is. Like for example, you decide to abstain until 2 o'clock, or 1 o'clock, or 3 o'clock. You abstain, abstain, abstain until like 1.30, or 1.45. And you feel all the hunger in the world came at you in the last 15 minutes. Sometime, for example, when we are praying, I pray and I pray at the beginning, prayer. I try to stay up as much as I can, and in the last hour, this is where I need to push myself. Because this is the fourth watch, this is where Christ comes and does work. So here, Saul needed to wait the extra. This is when he needs to show his faith in God. So when I get a chance to wait the extra hour, extra few minutes in prayer and fasting, I should know that this is a time where, eh, where I could meet Christ. And Samuel said, what have you done? What did you do? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Mishmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. Wow. What is Saul saying? Saul saying, look man, people are leaving. We're scared. We're terrified. The army's coming. And I need to offer to God. Really? You offer the sacrifice because you want to offer to God? Really? Is this your real true motive? He says, I wanted to offer supplication. I was compelled to offer supplication to, to God. You feel like he's fake, he's lying. He did not want to pray. He was more concerned with the people. He did not want the people to go to war without the ritual of prayer. But there's a big difference between soul lying 
and Saul trying to justify himself in front of Samuel. Because the only person that would be his conscience to be able to hear and to listen to is Samuel. So, and Samuel here could be our, be our father of confession, our, our spiritual guide. When I go to my spiritual guide or, or, or spiritual father, I have to be truthful. Otherwise, I will not receive, I will not receive the correct guidance. You start finding excuses for everything. Even he tried to, instead, you know, if he said all these excuse, excuses to, to, to Samuel and told him, so I, I had to offer the sacrifice because people would be scared if we go to war without me offering a sacrifice. At least he'll be more honest. But he told him, oh, we wanted to pray to God. Who are you fooling? Are you fooling yourself or are you fooling God? You can't. You can't fool God. It doesn't work. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. What you have done is really foolish. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel. So Samuel is very honest. So he told him, What you have done was really stupid. You had no good reason for it. You did not even admit your mistakes. It was Samuel's job to offer the sacrifice. This is, this is in Judges 20, 23, 1 Samuel 7, 9, and so on. Saul's of offering sacrifice is a violation of his role, violation of the role of the priest. And Saul obviously did not confess his sin, so Samuel rebuked him. Because if we don't confess our sin, sometime God allows us to be rebuked so we can wake up. That's why we said, eh, if you confess your sin, you'll be forgiven. If you don't, it will embarrass you. And the soul's, soul's biggest sin is that he did not keep the commandments of God. Now, because he did not keep the commandments of God, there is a consequence. He's going to pay a price. What is the price? You will see in the life of Saul, by the way, every time he commits a sin, there is a price. So the first time, God told him, your kingdom will not continue forever. There is a chance that Saul would Saul's lineage would have been kings over Israel until Christ came. But he told him, you will pay the price. Yes, he might not see it in his own lifetime. Imagine the impact that the people of God would have if they had lived their life according to the will of God. How much lasting impact would they would have even after their death. God is telling him, after your death, your legacy will be gone. You'll be out. You're going to pay the price. But now your kingdom shall not continue. 
The Lord has thought for himself a man after his own heart. Who is that man after his own heart? David the prophet. He's coming after Saul. And by the way, we will see later on in chapter 17 and 18, even before that, that Samuel did not know who, who is that man yet. He knew that God prepared the king, and that king is after his own heart, but he does not know all the details. We'll see how God guides him through the details. To be a commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So the sin he committed had a consequence. And God have already prepared. Somebody say, well, why God is punishing Saul? Well, Saul was nobody. Saul was just, nobody knew who Saul was. And God came and brought him and told him, I want you to be a king. And if God says, no longer you're going to be a king, that's fine. But his life should shed a light on our own life. That God brings us out of nothing and puts us to work with him. And then we have a responsibility. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gaba of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So Saul, obviously, after he you know, spoke these words with Samuel, he left. Uh, uh, and, and Saul numbered the people with him. Remember earlier, he had 2,000. Now when he counted them, how many did he has? 600. People left because of fear. They don't have a good leader. He's not standing strong. It's almost less than 20% of the original number. And we see that Saul did not care about the words of Samuel. It's really fascinating to me. Because Saul's early life, he saw what Samuel can do. Samuel told him what's going to happen in his day. The donkey was found. You're going to leave. You're going to find prophets. You're going to prophesize with them. You're going to go. He told him exactly how his, he predicted everything for him. So when Samuel tells you something and you don't take it seriously, there's a problem. No repentance, no confession, nothing. To, what should I do? Nothing. Let me count my men to move forward. How about where, where is your supplication to God? Did you ask Samuel about, I'm going to war, what should I do? Nothing. He now started to depend more on himself. Look what happened back. Saul, this is another part of the story. Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. So there was basically two. Usually in the old days, when two armies would fight, they would be both standing on two different mountains, and there is a valley in the middle. That's usually the way it works. So you have, you have to pass through the Jordan Valley, to, to be able to uh, reach either of the sides. Then the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road of Orpha in the land of Shaul, and another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the, of the border at, that overlooks the valley of Zayobom toward the wilderness. So basically what's happened, the riders, those basically can think of them as the invaders, the marines, you know, the marines unit. 
So the Philistines said, you know, we're going to split our army into four. The main army is in one area, and then we're going to move three different groups. And those three different groups will go in three different directions, north, west, and east. Okay, so basically they want to trap the army in the middle. So they started to take a, 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 a very trained uh, group of soldiers, they split them into three groups, and they started sending them into three different, to three different ways. Obviously, some of these names that he's mentioning are all cities in Israel. So Orpha, for example, is one of the Benjamin cities. It's mentioned in Joshua 18.23. Shaul is in, in also mentioned in Joshua. So now, basically, most of Israel has been occupied. Now they're coming to the last part to take it over. Now, look at verse 19. There was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, least the Hebrews make swords or, sphere, or spears. So as I was telling you earlier, why did Jonathan attack the Philistines? Because they live as slaves. They're not allowed to have any blacksmith. And by the way, this is a member earlier I told you, we were talking about the Iron Age and the Bronze Age. There's a lot of, there, there's a lot of Iron uh, Age work that has been discovered around the same time. So the enemy is trying to destroy their ability to fight. One of the things that the devil likes to do, he likes to humiliate us. Humiliate us. Lie. Lie so you can look good. And then later on after you lied, what a liar. You lost your credibility in front of people. Cheat, cheat so you can do well as everybody else. Then once you cheat, you think these greats, you got them by your own work and ethics. You're a cheater. Why don't you, you know, like have lustful looks and enjoy? And then he looks at you and be like, how do you, how, how do you consider yourself a child of God and all your eyes are full of lustful things? He likes to make us always feel defeated, humiliated, losers. That's what he does. And he always likes to remind us of our weaknesses. Christ doesn't do that. He does the opposite. He reminds us of what can we be? Where are we going? Where is our future? To encourage us and to make us live an identity. Look, but all Israel would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's uh, blowshares uh, blow and metic and axe and sickles. So anybody of Israel wants to sharpen any of their tools, the axe, the knives, they have to go all the way to Palestine to, Palestine to sharpen them. You have to completely depend on them. And the charge of sharpening was a pim. For the blow shares, the metics, the forks, and the axe, and to set the points of the goods. Pim is about two-thirds of a shekel. If you today look at how much a shekel is, it's about 30 cents, roughly. So you have to go all the way to the Philistines to sharpen your knife and come back. It's very humiliating. So it came about 
on the day of the battle that there was neither a sword nor a spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. In all Israel, no sword, no spear. They have no tools to fight. There are 600 people fighting an army of how much? 300,000 chariots and people more than the sands. The only two swords, one is with Saul and one with Jonathan. That's it. Why, why, why is the Bible emphasizing these things? Emphasizing the impossibility of this victory with human ability. And in all this, God is waiting for one person to work with. God is waiting for one person eh, to work with. And the Grissim of Palestines went out to pass of Mishmash. Now, Mikmash. Um, uh, uh, so now the, the, the people of the army of the Palestines, the structure of the Palestines, now moved from where they are and now they're moving. So remember I said there are three, they divide themselves into four. The main army, this is the one that's moving now. And now there are three different groups going north, west, and east. And the main army is coming from the south. So basically, in no time, they will destroy Israel. It looks like a very hopeless situation. Very hopeless situation. Let's see what will happen now. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor. It was very common in the old days that if you're a king or you're a prince, you have somebody who, bores, who will carry your shield, all the stuff you use. Come, let us go over to the Philistines' grissin that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Jonathan is a bit courageous and brave and he said you know what let me try to go break into their their lines but he said not tell my father because he probably his father will tell him you're crazy what you're gonna do is crazy I'm not gonna let you do this and Jonathan must also have understood that the eastern side so let me just explain this to you as we go forward the eastern side of the army was basically like two huge rocks meeting each other okay and because some of this army moved to to surround israel so probably the presence there of their army was a bit weaker okay so jonathan said you know what let us go and try maybe to break into this who's going with jonathan one more person two people that's it two people jonathan did not ask his arm bearer to, you know, maybe you should go scout, see how things look, and then we'll make a decision. He's just moving. He's not holding back. And sometimes when you are driven by God, you start moving, moving, moving because the Spirit is moving you. And it's a beautiful time when no longer I let my mind work, my emotions work, my fear, everything's in the hands of God. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Geba under a pomegranate tree, which is in Megron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. The Bible keeps saying the people with him, 600 men, 600 men, 600. They're so weak. Now when he says Saul was sitting under the pomegranate tree, it usually means that he's doing his judicial work. It was common, for example, Deborah used to sit under the palm tree in Judges 4-5. It provides some shade for them. So he's probably sitting at the, at, the, at the city gate or somewhere else where they are doing their work. 
So it's most likely even he's managing the army, people are coming, what are we gonna do, what are we gonna do? He has a place where people go to him, ask for orders what to do next. Ahijah, the son of Ahituf, Akibad's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing the ephod, but the people did not know what Jonathan, that Jonathan had done. So what's happening? Saul is standing, and there is a priest standing next to him. Okay, remember last time we said, long time ago we said, God punished Eli, and he told him, none of your children or grandchildren would live for long, for, for a long time. So this is one of the children of Eli. He's still a priest, but probably he's not going to live for long because this is what God's promised to him. Now he was wearing the ephod. What's the ephod? The ephod is a priest garment. They used to have two different stones, two different crystals. The Urim and the Thummim. Okay? And what happens, usually the priest would ask God, you know, King Saul wants to go to war. Should he go or, sh or should he not? Then usually one of the stones would turn on with light. Okay, it would be clear. So then they would know that this is the voice of God. This is the way it works. Okay, so one of the priests, one of the priests of, of Eli, one of the ch grandchildren of Eli, were wearing the ephod and wearing the two stones. So... Now, Saul has this priest standing, and he does not know that Jonathan tried to break the two line. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' grissom, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. So, by the way, the, the scripture is telling us two stories in the same time. Saul standing with the 600 people trying to figure out what to do, and Jonathan and his arm bearer trying to break into the, into the army. So now he's telling them, Saul is standing with the priest, probably going to try to figure out what to do. And then while Jonathan is breaking in, he, and Saul doesn't know. A sharp rock, so uh, Jonathan went to the structure of the Philistines, one of the structures. There was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The name of the one was Bozis and the name of the other is Kenah. And both of them, by the way, these rocks, one of them, uh, Bozis, means shine or glitter or glim. And, uh, and, and the, the, the other stone, Shina, means the thorn bush. The thorn bush. And these usually, people say, the tools that the enemy uses to capture us. Either it gives you a glimmery picture or a shiny picture. And also, we don't realize that the path we walk in has thorns. Okay? But... We see here that Jonathan came to these two rocks, okay? And in the front of one faced the northward opposite Mikmash and the other southward opposite Evgepa. So basically the two stones were looking facing each other like this. What is that? Why is this important? I'm going to explain to you later. But he's basically explaining this because when Jonathan goes up to meet the Philistines, he actually has to climb. He's going to look very funny. Okay? He's going to look very funny. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the grisson of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan told the, the guy with him, told him, Look, let us go and fight the army of the Philistines. 
He's crazy. Two people go and fight an army. He doesn't know who's there. Tell him they are uncircumcised. What does he mean by they are uncircumcised? They are not depending on God. They are not loyal to God. He's going on a suicide mission. Literally, literally. But he feels that God is on his side. Why? Because he is defending the honor of the children of God. He told him, hey, God saves with few and many. The only person that remembered that God saved them with few was Jonathan. This is what happened with Gideon. God asked him, reduce the numbers, reduce the numbers. Gideon told him, what do you want me to do? I have very little people to fight, yes. Sometime, in order for God to work, He has to put us in an extreme vulnerable situation that I can only attribute this work to God. Nobody else. Nobody else. So, he made an offer to the arm bearer that's very scary. Let's see what the arm bearer says. So his arm bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. Both are crazy. Okay? The, the arm bearer, imagine Saul had 3,000 people. 3,000, also a big number. Yani. So they're, instead of encouraging each other, 2,400 ran away. This guy who has only one with him, but because of his heart, his courage, his faith. He motivated this young man to say, do all what's in your heart. You see, the arm bearer didn't tell him, do all what's in your mind, because there's no logical lo logic there. You know, and that's, by the way, sometimes, what is, when we say faith, faith is the lens we use when there's, when things don't make sense. I don't need faith when I'm eating, when I'm shopping. It's a normal, normal, predictable things. I need faith when things don't make sense. People want to fall into a problem to say, well, well, I don't have faith in God. Well, that's a time where you need faith. You're going to use it when you don't need it. Doesn't make any sense. So then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. And if thus... And if they say thus to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be assigned to us. Jonathan just wanted to put one final check. Is this from God or not? So he did something interesting. He said, we'll go up, we'll show them ourselves. And if they say, come, we'll come to you, it means we shouldn't fight. If they say, come to us, we're going to go fight. Obviously, anybody will tell you, come to us first. That's yani, the most logical way. So he's basically in his heart. He's telling God, I want to fight for you. I'm not scared. He's not trying to put obstacles. Okay. So both of them showed themselves to the aggression of Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes 
where they have hidden. Then the men of the Grissom called to Jonathan and his arm bearers and said, Come up, let us come up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his arm bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hands of Israel. Basically, Jonathan climbed up these two rocks. They stood. The Philistines said, Look, the Israelites are coming. But then they told him, Come to us. Once they told him, Come to us, he said, This is a sign from God. Then look at what Jonathan told the armbearer. He told him, come after me. He's not acting like a prince. Go before me. If you die, I could run away. No. He is, this is the sign of a good leader. A sign of somebody who, who really is truly driven by God. You know, there are some people in life that get so busy with so many things because they want to make an impact. And some people make an impact because they have vision. Some people make an impact because they have a vision. They have a, a zeal. They have passion. Here we see that Jonathan is making an impact. Not because he wants to make an impact. It's because he has faith in God. The Philistines are, are belittling them. It says, look, they came out of their caves. Look at these rats. Came out of their face. And him with his, very, with his very simple faith. He sees their number. He sees are, how many people are coming. No problem. No problem. And you know what's so beautiful? That these conversations were really were remembered. Probably by the arm bearer. Why, why, how is this written in the scripture? Probably the arm bearer went and told the people, let me tell you about Jonathan. Let me tell you what he did. He gave me so much courage. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with the arm bearer after him. Looks like, you know, rats coming. And they fell before Jonathan. Who fell before Jonathan? The enemy. And he came after him, his arm bearer killed him. So basically, Jonathan in the front, anybody comes, Jonathan hits him with the sword, and then he's hit, then the arm bearer finishes him, you know? And that's, that's kind of the system they have. One hits, the second one finishes. For the first, that first lotter, which Jonathan, his arm bearer made, was about 20 men within half an acre of land. This is basically an area, it's a unit of measurement, which is about one day seedings with a seed blower. First, 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 first hit, they killed 20 people. Obviously, you might say, oh, this is, this is normal, but 20 people, Jonathan, who the only, him and his dad are the only two people that have swords, and you're fighting with Philistines who are very well trained, who are very strong, and he killed 20 people? That's unbelievable. That's something that is not in a human hand. But later on we will see how, could it, how our Lord will show more that this is a, of a miracle and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.